Hey, we're going to open God's Word together, and our speaker today is Louise. Now, Louise is amazing. I love Louise, and uh, in fact, Louise has been kind of coming on and off to this church here for actually about five years or so, and particularly over the last 18 months, has just become increasingly plugged in here. She's someone who's got uh, an amazing story, been involved in Christian uh, leadership and church leadership throughout her life, actually, uh, and especially here uh, in this part of London in Tower Hamlet. So can we hear it for Louise? She's going to come and speak to us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. I asked Phil, I said, should I say a little bit more about myself? So I, I will say a bit more than that. I have lived in Tower Hamlets probably for about 10 years now, actually. I moved from Cambridge to lead a church um, on the Isle of Dogs. I was thinking, what should I say to you to just give you a little bit about myself? So I've been involved in church leadership, probably or working for churches since I was about 19, in and out of different things. I've been a teacher for 25 years. I'm a deputy head and a senko. A senko is somebody that looks after all the children with special educational needs in a school to make sure that the provision for them is right. And just right at this moment... I've stopped working because I really feel that God has something else for me. So I've taken some time out. I just finished at Easter being a deputy head and I'm applying for jobs and praying and thinking about the next kind of thing for me in life, what God wants. But I think probably the thing that underlines um, what God has done in all that time, I was thinking in the worship, I've been a Christian for 33 years. The thing that underlines everything that I've done is uh, God has given me a real heart for the disadvantaged, those that are traumatized, actually. So through all my teaching career, I've um, always worked in really tough schools. My last school was Camberwell. There's a massive gang culture in Camberwell. There are lots of traumatized young people in Camberwell. And that's been the same throughout my career. Um, where there's real difficulty, actually, where the life of Jesus and the love of God makes a qualitative difference in a way that social programs and, and other things that we try to put into place don't quite cut it. And, and with those young people actually ministering to their families as well, because with every damaged and traumatized young person and adolescent, is there's a, a family that sits behind there that's also really, really struggling. So that, that really is my heart. That's been the same in church leadership for, to be real, actually, about life is a bit difficult and uh, the difference that Jesus makes. So it's so good to hear you say what you said this morning, Ellen. That's in, uh, just like make, I like close to tears because actually that is the difference that the gospel makes. 
you know, takes people that are hurting and have been damaged and struggling to make sense of where they are and, and gives them real hope. Anyway, let's get on with them, what we're doing this morning. We're having a look at John 20 in your Bibles. John 20, verse 1 to 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of, of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and he believed. They did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Still, they didn't understand it. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? But they've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they've put him. At this, they turned around, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go and get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned towards him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he'd said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that just as we've sung this morning, that you are the perfect Father and that we are your children and that you love us. Pray this morning that we would hear the words that you want us to hear. Father, give us open hearts that we would respond to what you're saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, one of the things that I've been doing just over the last two terms, actually, is on a Tuesday night, I've been going to St. Melitus, to the Theological College, just to do um, some courses in theology. And one of the things which they encourage you to do, and one of the things which I guess I've always done, and probably because I'm a teacher, and you have to really make things clear to children so that there's no ambiguities, I always think about the context of what I'm teaching about. And probably a little bit because I am the way that I am personally. I always try to think about if I was the people in this passage, how would I be feeling right now as we read the passage? And actually, as I said, I've been a Christian for 33 years and this kind of empty tomb passage, I've probably heard 33 times because it comes up every Easter. We talk about the empty tomb. And when we're so familiar with Scripture sometimes, we forget that for the people on the page, this is the first time that they experienced this. So what place were they in? How were they experiencing this? And I have to say, you know, it's great. It's the empty tomb. We have the benefit of hindsight, don't we? We know that because of what happened at Easter, our relationship with God, people's relationship with God changed for good. Our relationship with God was not like the relationship that people before that time had with God. Because of what Jesus did, the price that he paid we can come into his presence without any barriers at all. But that wasn't true for them. They lived in a world where once a year, somebody had to go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement. That means to pay the price for the sin of the people. They didn't have a a relationship with God where they could meet with him, where they could hear from him. They didn't have the Spirit of God They lived in a very, very different world. So we can see that's great. All this has just happened and we know that things have changed and, you know, this is the most incredible point in history. But for the people on the page, they had just lived through probably the most traumatic 72 hours that they had ever been through. So in the last 72 hours, they'd seen one of their friends betray their leader. So somebody that they trusted had gone out, gone to the Jewish authorities who'd like brought the Romans. At university I did classics, so I know a lot about the Romans. 
and what a cruel, actually, the, the cruelty of the punishments that they gave out to the people that they conquered. So they'd seen their friend hand over their leader, betray him. They'd watched as he was taken away. They narrowly escaped being arrested themselves. If you have a look in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's only they didn't get arrested themselves because Jesus pled for them, said, look, just leave them alone. Take me, leave them alone. So they might have been arrested. So there was incredible fear. Jesus had been taken to the Praetorium and that's where the physical violence started. We'd been hit by the people that were there questioning him, then handed over to Pilate, and that's when the torture started, and the humiliation, the scourging, having his body ripped to shreds, and then having to carry his own cross through the streets to the hill where he was nailed to the cross. And the disciples had seen all this. We forget, don't we? We're just like reading it through. Yes, and that happened. And then he was taken to Pilate. And then, but actually, this was, I can only describe it as trauma. They were traumatized, fearful. This was a terrible situation that they'd witnessed. And then they'd watched him die. Or those that had the strength, actually, to be at the foot of the cross, which was John and Mary and Mary, the mother of Jesus. The others weren't there, the Bible tells us. Because they were probably living in fear of the Roman authorities and the Jews. This was the worst, probably 72 hours, that they'd ever experienced. And so then we come to the passage the next day. So Mary, you can imagine, if she's anything like me, and probably some of you will relate to this, has not slept for 72 hours. She can't sleep because all she wants to do is get back to where she last saw him when he was put in the tomb. Because actually Mary Magdalene, Jesus had given her a level of respect and dignity that nobody else had given her. She just wanted to be with him. He was dead, but sometimes we just want to be back at that place where we last saw the person that we love. So she sets out with some of the other women. It's very interesting to anoint the body of Jesus, but she would have known. You can tell the level of confusion, because if she'd really thought about it, the stone had been rolled in front of the tomb. She wasn't going to be able to push it out of the way. She wouldn't have been able to get to the body, but they went anyway. And as she gets there, the stone is gone, and he's not there. And then panic sets in. So she goes to Peter, and she says, look, they've taken him away. And he comes running with John. John gets there first, but he doesn't look in. And then Peter gets there and looks in, and they can see that Jesus isn't there. Now, remember that they are traumatized. There's a lack of hope because of the Roman authorities and the Jews. You can imagine that they're looking in and thinking, well, where is he? We haven't moved him. Who's moved him? And then 
standing there and, and thinking, are there Jewish spies hiding somewhere? Maybe this is a plan, they've taken him away, but why would they have done that? And you see, the disciples, what they actually do is that they don't stick around. So they can see he's gone, and probably for fear of the Roman authorities, well, actually, one of the versions says that they went back to their homes. So now we've got a traumatized set of people who've just lived probably the worst 72 hours in their lives. Now Jesus' body has disappeared, and you think they were really fearful. All their hopes and dreams, everything that they had heard from Jesus, all the hope they had for a new kingdom, that it was all dust. It had all died a death with Jesus on the cross. Because the Bible is quite clear, actually. We can see, can't we? It's great for us. We can see what God's doing. We've got the whole range of Scripture. We've just been looking at Jonah. And we can see the parallels in Jonah with the life of Jesus. We can look at the Old Testament. We can look at the New Testament. We've got the letters of Paul. We can see that whole line of what God is doing. They were stuck in a moment and having to deal with the death of hopes and dreams alongside the death of their friend. So the disciples have gone, probably out of fear. It says earlier, doesn't it, that they were fearful. And this is where I think I really relate to Mary Magdalene, because she, if you think about trauma, I've worked with traumatized children and adolescents for a long time. And actually, the world that we live in at the moment, that seems to be getting worse. As a Senko, over the last probably seven years, what I'm seeing more with children and young people is that me the mental health of children and young people uh, um, and showing trauma is increasing. And when they react, um, they, it is true, you usually get the fight, the flight, and the freeze. So I've helped children who, in awkward situations, when they come across a situation that they can't manage, then they become physically violent and aggressive. Or they run away. I had a child just a, a few uh, weeks ago who... Um, we were talking to the police about because his default position when he was struggling was to run away. So he spent a few evenings all night riding around the buses in London. This is a 10-year-old riding around the buses in London because he didn't want to go home because home was too difficult to be in. And if you look at things like the biggest killer of men under 45 is suicide. That's a statistic. Sounds a bit, oh, Louise, just like telling us lots of awful things. But actually, this is the place where the church makes a difference. And we're going to see that in just a minute because the way Jesus 
comes alongside and appears to Mary Magdalene really speaks to that kind of ministering to people that have lost hope. So she's there, and it looks like she's in freeze because she's just crying, and she's stuck. The disciples have gone, so they've flight. They've gone out of fear. They haven't stuck around. Kind of in my head, kind of I go through scenarios in my head, I like to think that one of them or both of them might have gone, Mary, actually, this is a bit dangerous to stay here because there's probably the Jewish authorities or the Romans. You might want to come back with us. And she'd gone, you know, I need to stay. But it doesn't actually say that. But I like to think that they were looking out for her. But she was stuck. She was weeping. She had nowhere else to go. Jesus was the person that had given her her dignity back. As far as the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities would have regarded her as kind of insignificant. She was a woman. She would have been well known in that community because, well, the Bible tells us that Jesus had had to kick out seven demons out of her in a different bit of the Bible. So she was damaged, and she was stuck in freeze because she and just weeping. And then the most incredible thing happens. So she looks in, and there are two angels. Quite clear, you can tell from the, the passage that she doesn't really understand that they're angels. And they say, "Why are you crying?" And she said, "Well, they've taken my lord away. Where have they? Can you tell me where he is?" And then she turns around, and the Bible tells us Jesus is standing there, but she doesn't recognize him. And he asks the same question, why are you crying? You can imagine, can't you, if it was me, or just like uncontrollably like weeping, not being able to think straight, I can't, I can't move, I don't know what to do, I don't know where to go. And he says, who are you looking for? And he knows that she's waiting for him. And then he does the most incredible thing. He calls her by her name, Mary. And in that moment, she sees him. And for the world that we live in, we need to be telling people that Jesus knows their name. Jesus knows them. There might be people in this room today, and God wants you to know that he knows your name. He knows about you. He sees you. You're not forgotten. And sometimes God goes to incredible lengths to make sure that we know that. I had the privilege of being um, one of the assistant chaplains for Bristol University. And I used to go and visit students. And um, I went to visit one student. I can't remember that it was a pastoral issue. I, I, w I went to see her. And um, from quite a young age when I became a Christian in my teens, I've heard from God quite clearly that's never really been an issue hearing from God for me. And so we were praying, and God gave me a picture of a rugby shirt. 
I'm a realist as well, so sometimes the words that you get and you think, is that, is that me or is, you know, is that, is that really God? So that's just a bizarre thing to see. Uh, okay, but I've always said, whatever God says, I will say it. And if it looks weird to everybody else, well, that's just, that's just the way it is. But I'll be obedient. That's the most important thing to me. Be obedient to what God says. So I said, oh, I'm seeing a picture of this rugby shirt. There's these two colors. Does that, does that ring a bell to you? And she's like, no. You're just like, oh, right. Um, I said, well, it's got a white collar. And no, just like, do you know? Do you know? Okay. All right, well, we'll move on. So I prayed for her. And, um, and then about... Four days later, we were at a service, and I was sat at the back as the chaplain, and then I noticed her in the congregation, <laughs> and the person she was sat next to was wearing this rugby shirt. <laughs> and you just think, and they didn't know each other, I found out later, so I was like, oh, that's the rugby shirt. So at the end, I went up, you just feel a bit of a mad person you do but I went up and said I know this sounds a bit strange but actually God showed me a picture of your rugby shirt and um, God said to me that he has written your name on the palm of his hands and this guy burst into tears like that just burst into tears because he was really struggling with feeling invisible and God knew that God wanted to speak to him. God knows your name. And if you feel invisible today, you need to just pray with somebody. Say, I feel like God doesn't really know me. This shows God knows us. And the reaction, she's like, you can see that she goes to grab onto him. Because it's like comfort. It's comfort. He knows me. And uh, you can see it kind of, he's almost like, oh, Jesus going, whoa, I haven't ascended to the Father yet. Don't. And actually in other versions it says that she was clinging to him. Clinging to him. And it shows that God knows us. And then the most incredible thing. So he commissions her. He gives her a purpose. He doesn't leave his people in a place of trauma. Just think about everything that you said last week, Phil, about down, 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 up, up, up. God doesn't leave us in a desperate place. He has a plan for us. Even though we might have been through the most traumatic time you can imagine, he has a plan for us. She is the first evangelist. He says, go, tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my father and their father, to my God and their God. So not only does he tell her to go, makes her the first evangelist, but he also entrusts her with the word of God, a woman that actually nobody really had very much time for. It shows that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. What we value, 
and what the world values is not often what God values. It's an incredible moment where we see that God knows you. He knows what you've been through. He's not going to leave you in that place. He wants to give you purpose and a job to do. We've all got a job to do. The other thing coming out of this passage is that when he says, go tell them I'm going to my father and their father, to my God and and their God, I think what he's doing is that he's talking about family. Tell my brothers. And if there's anything in church that we need to be at this moment in history is family, real authentic family. The world is full of lonely people. The church is full of lonely people. And we don't like to admit that sometimes because we think, well, we've got our people that we get on with and we see these people. But actually, people come through our doors, people sitting in the pews with us that are desperately lonely. And I think out there, they don't even know that actually we we have the privilege of knowing that if all else fails everything will be all right because we've got an eternal heavenly destination. They don't have that out there. They live in this perpetual feeling of actually things are terrible when they're going through difficult things and there is no safety net for me. And the church has the word, Jesus has the words of eternal life and it is our job as the church to be authentic family, to move out of our comfort zone and to talk to that person that's just walked in through the door that you don't have never seen before, even if it means that it's really embarrassing when they say, no, I've been coming for about six months. Better to have asked, as I haven't seen you before, how are you? I know this because I've like been through, me and my little family have been through some incredible trauma. And there have been times that I've walked into a church when my pastor husband had left and I was alone with three children and nobody talked to me on that first day and I was in bits and I couldn't say if one person had said to me are you alright? I would have fallen apart because we know what to do when we see people falling apart we can be compassionate but actually we need to provide an atmosphere where people can be absolutely real everybody is welcome so I'm going to hand over to Phil I have the three things I want you to think about the first is that Jesus knows your name if you've never responded to him before come on and respond to him 
because he loves you. He wants to take what you've got and give you an amazing life. It won't be easy. But it'll be fulfilled and full of purpose. If you are looking for your purpose, maybe ask God, what is it that you want me to do? And the third thing is, what are you going to do to make this place authentic family? And it's good that the kids are here because that's part, they are part of our family. Louise, Louise, why don't you just tell us once again, you know, what are those three things? So to think about the fact that God knows your name and if you feel forgotten, then come to him ask him to reveal himself to you and that um, what are you going to do to really make church an authentic place of family and what is the purpose that God has given you what if you don't know ask him <laughs>